Here's Reinman in the Morning, on demand from 1021 and 105.3 The Shark. My guest is a columnist for the Boston Globe, the recipient of the Baseball Writers of America Association Career Excellence Award, and the author of the wonderful book, Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird Celtics. Welcome to Reinman in the Morning, Dan Shaughnessy. Mr. Shaughnessy, how's it going? Very nice to be here. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. It's an honor to speak with you. But before we talk sports, uh, you're one of my favorite writers of all time, and you came up with one of my favorite expressions, which I use to this day. You once referred to someone as a, quote, sack of inner tubes. How did you come up with the expression sack of inner tubes, which I just love? I think that uh, this goes back. I'm so old. I'm pretty sure it's all in the family. The Norman Lear sitcom with Carol O'Connor and Sally Struthers and Rob Reiner. I think that um, Archie Bunker referred to his son-in-law, the meathead, <laughs> as a sack of. And I think there was Gloria was 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 married to to Mike, and she was flirting with somebody at work or something who was a really handsome guy. And Archie said, "You know, meathead." This guy she works with makes you look like a sack of inner tubes, <laughs> and uh, I'm pretty sure that's so. I'm gonna I'm gonna assign that one to Norman Lear from like 50 years ago. <laughs> and who was it that you referred to, if you don't mind my asking? That could have been anybody. I mean, uh, <laughs> over the years, we've used you know we've used sack of doorknobs, sack of inner tubes. You know, sack is a good word in general. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you wrote a column the other day about this this terrible championship drought we're having here in New England. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Who do you think is going to be the team to, to break this slump? Well, I mean, we were so close with the Celtics and Bruins this spring, and you had the greatest regular hockey season of all time. But it feels like that window kind of closed on them a little bit. You know, we don't know if Bergeron's going to be back. You know, Krejci's going to be back. And uh, some guy, you know, Marchand's getting long in the tooth and some of those guys. So it feels like that window passed a little bit, and, and that sport is – you know, the playoffs are so hit or miss with mm-hmm. their sport. The Celtics, you would have to say, I mean, they were well-positioned and um, still are because they have the same – it's a young core. So I think you'd have to say them out of the four at this point. Uh, it never seems to work out the way we think, but I'd say Celtics. Okay. Well, you know, it's a crucial off season for them, and you spent a lot of time around the great Red hour back. So what do you think Red would do – with this Celtics team this summer? That's interesting. You know, see, Red would love Marcus Smart, which is not what everybody wants to hear, but he liked guys that were do as many things as he does. Red would also really discourage the late game, you know, shots by Smart. He'd be like, Marcus, there's a reason you're open at the end. They want you to do it. <laughs> I, so how I would plan against us, I would try to get the ball in your hands because we have better guys. So, But I think he would try to clean that up, but he loves Marcus Smart, so I don't think he'd trade him. I don't think you'd want to pay Brown and Tatum the same way at the same time. So not to mention Tatum presents as, as somewhat anti-Semitic in my view, and I've not seen anything to uh, to shoot that down when Brown. you give him opportunities. Brown, yeah, I mean, Brown. Okay. I, yeah, if I said smart, I'd take that back. Yeah, Jalen Brown, I just he's been given opportunities to kind of renounce you know, the Kanye thing and all this, and he, he won't do it, and he's never really expressed a love to be in Boston. And I just think the numbers to pay, you know, it's hard to keep up with the times, and Red really couldn't relate to that, I suppose. But having all that payroll on, on those two guys, I'm not sure. But he loved talent, and you have talent. They just have a duplication of skill sets there, I think. And, and uh, you know, the positionless basketball and the 6'6", 6'7", 6'8", swing guys, and everybody's standing on the perimeter. It's it's the NBA today. 
Yeah. But uh, Red would like the way Jokic plays a lot more than the way his guys play. Well, say they move on from Jalen Brown, which seems to be a you know realistic possibility. Who would you look to get back for him in a trade, possibly? Boy, that's wide open. And of course, they just you know um, the kid in Washington, Beal, came off the market. Looks like just just now uh, going to Phoenix for another super team over there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't have the answer for that. I mean, I you know. Uh, Lillard is is a better fit, I think, for them. They don't really have a true point guard, and I'd hold on to Derek White for sure. I think he's been a guy that that can. He's a little bit different from what the other people there do. Doesn't need the ball quite as much, but they've got to create minutes for him. They've just uh, they've kind of got good problems in that you know too many good players, too many minutes, this and that. But a lot of duplication of skills, like I said, and and you can't turn that. Thing over to a 34-year-old inexperienced coach the way they did. They put themselves in a box there, too. So they've, they've addressed that by bringing in some of the veteran, you know, Sam Cassell and veteran coach presence and help for Joe Missoula. But, uh, you know, a lot of there's a lot of strangeness to their year, starting with the way Eme was let go and leading right up to losing Game 7 at home the way they did. Yeah, and when I look at, you talk about the duplicating skills, when I look at Brown and Tatum, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the early days of Golden State when you had Monta Ellis and Steph Curry and both good shooters, good guards, but it was like one was a much better version than the other. And so I was kind of waiting to see this postseason. Are they going to show us what everyone talks about, the, quote, Jordan Pippen thing? But it kind of is what you talked about. It's just guys pulling up for threes, right? Doing kind of the same thing. Yeah, and and really, I mean, they're, I know they still have a lot of ball left in them, but they've got six and seven years, respectively, in the league and should be better by now in those situations. They've lost 12 home games in the playoffs in two years. That's crazy. I don't know what that's about. And uh, and, and Brown to have eight turnovers in that game seven and just when they really needed him to step up because Tatum got hurt at the start of the game and all this. Just, I don't know, something missing with Brown. And uh, he's never really shown me that he loves it here. And, and that's a hard decision to make because everybody yeah. wants talent. Well, even before the series against the Heat, I think it's fair to say that at times you've been somewhat critical of Jason Tatum. What would you like to see differently from him as a Celtic? I just don't think we're ever going to see. You know, the, we know the ceiling's high and, and the upside, and uh, he's just got to do better in big games. And I mean, he was short in the fourth quarter of all those Miami games. Um, I just don't get it. It's, he's sort of a strange guy, and. Nothing evil about him or nefarious, or whatever. But uh, it should be better. It just—it feels like you really can't work with this. But the things that are important to him don't seem to be the things that were important to, you know, Bill Russell and Sam Jones and Bird and McHale and those guys. It just, you know, and this is today's athlete, the AAU Warriors, and the way they're raised and and um, wanting to be MVP of the All Star Game. I mean, who mm. gives a crap about that? Yeah. But uh, the max contracts and the respect and. And the fact that none of these guys, they don't, they don't understand why we don't like Kyrie. Like, like they don't see it. You know, they're all hugging Kyrie. Why would someone throw a water bottle at Kyrie? You know, <laughs> yeah, we, we want to be like him. So I think that's problematic. My favorite like extension of Kyrie's trouble he's given us is that I have a six-year-old daughter, and when I take her to the garden, they always take the caps away from the bottles now. And I finally, finally asked him, I said, why do you guys do this? And they, it's because someone threw a bottle at Kyrie. That's funny. <laughs> so then I had, to ex- I had to explain to her, okay, so there's this guy, Kyrie. Well, no, I can't tell you everything he's talked about. But, uh, no. yeah, you wrote this excellent book, Wish It Lasted Forever, about covering the Celtics in the 80s. And you talk about this in the book. It was tricky for a while because at one point you did a lot of hard work on something that went on with Larry Bird 
and you uncovered an important thing, but it kind of ran afoul of him, right, at one point? Yes. Was this much different back then? Like, I mean, nowadays everyone's always trying to get the big, you know, the quote clickbait, if they will. This was a genuine story. How did it feel at the time to have the most famous athlete in Boston uh, just not talking to you when you're trying to do your job? Well, I'm used to have been down that path with David Ortiz and Clemens and others since, but in that moment, it was tough because I was the beat guy and I liked him and he liked me. And it was, it was a very joyous time to be uh, covering a team in our town because that was a very joyous team. And, but that, you know, Larry got in a barroom fight during the playoffs in 85 and his percentage went down and his hand was messed up. And, and it, it took two months to, to get it, the whole thing to come out. And when it did, I, and I called him, I said, I'm going to have to do this. And he said, well, I'm not talking to you. And, uh, you know, he, he admitted, you know, he was embarrassed when it came out, and it was out of court settlements, and it was bad. It did affect things, and uh, I didn't like doing it, but it needed to be done. And it took about it took the whole next season really to, to get off that, and I understood. Uh, but there were ways to cover the team. It just, I, it, you know, I didn't enjoy it, but it, it was it was important, and um, the, the facts had to get out, and they did get out, and. It was, like I said, out-of-court settlements. He, he at one time apologized to the Worcester reporter. It's in the book, Mary Shane, because mm-hmm. he was embarrassed for his mom. And you know, he, and he cleaned up after that. He stopped being in the wrong place, you know, stopped having you know goons around him and and uh, and just cleaned it up a little bit. And I think in, in, in his life curve, I think it was it was a learning experience for him. We all do dumb things when we're young. Sure. This is such a lively team. The 80 Celtics, I always maintain – the funniest sports team ever. Like when I see those yes. documentaries, they're just genuinely like could all be real comedians. But it was in an era long before social media. If Twitter existed in the 80s, which of those Celtics do you think would have been on there kind of like making the news? That's a really good question. And I think that Larry would have been pretty exposed early on, I think, because well, Rick Roby clearly would have, you know, just they wouldn't have wanted that kind of scrutiny, you know, people with cell phone cameras and late night stuff and all that. And they were, you know, it was just kind of, you know, frat house boys and this and that. There was not a lot of um, problems with police dockets. You know, he really didn't have that. Yeah. So uh, that was good. And and because they weren't those kinds of infractions, but, but still stuff looks bad on social media, but nobody's waving guns around and nightclubs or anything like that. So I think that one, and one of the things that it sounds to me like you've gleaned from that and, the way they were, they were unusually secure in their own abilities and their own greatness, which is what brought out the best in that team. And we don't see it as much today. There's jealousies and who's making the most money, who's got the supermax, who's leading the league in assists, who's getting first two team all in NBA, whatever. There wasn't much of that. They all had been so accomplished in their own worlds and they rooted for each other sincerely. And it wasn't about playing time or minutes or credit. They knew Larry was going to get more credit, but they figured it out. Robert Parrish knew he was going to not get as many touches, but he also knew he was going to be a champion and he was going to have a really long career and he was going to get the ball in spots dunk all the time. Yep. So if you worked for that, you were rewarded. And uh, they, they rooted for each other. Dennis Johnson, you know, I mean, he was a great teammate and he could guard the other team's best guy, Magic or Tony, whatever, but. Larry would just always compliment him, best teammate I ever had, you know. And yeah. Dennis got his his props there and and got his rings and all the badness of being in in Seattle and Phoenix and being called a cancer by other coaches. That that all went away in Boston because he had great teammates who 
knew how good he was and how to get the most out of him. So I like that about that team, and it, it made for uh, a lot more fun. Well, I just like to, whenever there's like Embiid and people like that going after people on Twitter or Draymond, I like to imagine if Mikhail and Lambeer each had Twitter accounts. <laughs> just like what that would have been. I would have gone on all summer probably, right, between those Absolutely. guys? Absolutely. Oh, my God, those guys. Yeah, they, they, they would have thought that was a silly medium. They'd just, they'd just come out and say it. Larry just say, I hate Bill Lambeer, and you'd kind of go from there. Yeah. Speaking of uh, things that people are kind of hating right now, and not without a reason, uh, Boston Red Sox. Uh, Dan, do you see any path to success there, or should we just turn Fenway Park into like a spirit Halloween store at this mm. point? Well, as we speak, I'm feeling better about them because I was there yesterday, and they swept the Yanks in a doubleheader, and they've they've won four in a row, and they're only a game and a half from getting out of last place, and I don't mm. know, three or four out of the wild card, and and the pitching is is coming around a little bit. You know, they got Kluber out of the rotation, they they know they're going without Sale now, and but Bayo looks like a top end guy if he stays healthy. And uh, you know Paxton has—he might be a trade chip or something—but he's he's finally getting some production out of him. Bullpen's been on you know a lot of unknown guys doing better. I think there—it's the illusion of contention. They're not going to catch you know Tampa or Baltimore, or not going to seriously contend. But they're they're good enough where I don't think they'll be hopelessly out of it and be big time sellers at the deadline. Uh, they they have enough, uh, but they also could finish in last place for the third time in four years and sixth time in twelve years. So. That's very real. It's a very tenuous thing. You always remember the last thing you saw. The last thing I saw was pretty good. And uh, they're going on the road to uh, Minnesota and Chicago. See how that holds up. But when it's bad, it's bad there. The defense gets very shaky. It's a dysfunctional roster. People playing out of position. And they tend to all go in slumps at the same time. So uh, it's very uneven. It's, it's not the product that Boston fans deserve because they don't have the star power uh, that that you deserve. You got a GM who's trying to drive down the payroll at ownership's mandate, and um, and a lot of dumpster diving and bringing in four A players. And that lineup on a daily basis just has three or four guys that you wouldn't think would be Boston Red Sox. Well, what do you think? Do you think anything happened there behind the scenes for the team to go from having consistently one of the highest payrolls trying yeah. to win every year to all of a sudden just? dropping all the salary it just seems so yeah. peculiar 2019 man i mean they won they won it all in 18 going away and in 19 i think they had 84 wins and it's it just they felt it was flat they were angry about being a top three payroll team and paying luxury tax and they, they showed their hand they had a press conference after they fired dombrowski in late in september and said you know there are teams out there spending half as much money as us that are in the playoffs and i said oh there yeah. it is yeah and that's what they're not going to do anymore so they'll spend half as much and try to Make the playoffs, which is what you're seeing on a yearly basis. Spend half as much and um, get in there for that last wild card, which is the illusion of contention, which is one of the six out of 15. And uh, we can win 84 and fool people into thinking we're still about winning when they're really not, in my view. Uh, last question for you, because I know you have a lot to cover. There's the NBA draft this week, as we talked about the Red Sox. But I want to ask you about something that you do that I love, and the Daily Mile. Are you still keeping up with the Daily Mile every day? Yeah, it's pathetic. We try to be hiding out in my neighborhood. Everybody's little kids are making fun of me, and <laughs> people in strollers are blasting by me. But I, yeah, I jog one mile a day every day since January first, nineteen eighty-three. Yeah. So we're into year forty-one here, and and uh, very few misses. There's been a couple misses, you know, a broken bone here or there, and a, a kidney stone, blah blah blah. But um, yeah, pretty much. Uh, I think there was one 13-year streak. We didn't miss any, uh, but yeah, all but a handful of days for for 40 years, and 
And uh, but it's really slow. It's embarrassingly slow. And uh, <laughs> so if you're in a, you know, if you're if you're walking and you blast by me, don't don't make fun of me. You know, if you're in a baby, you know, carrying a baby stroller or something, just please try not to mock me when you go past me because that's, that's just me <laughs> keeping the street going. My thanks again to Dan Shaughnessy. You can read him every day in the Boston Globe and check out his book. Wish it lasted forever. Life with the Larry Bird Celtics. And you know something? If you can't go for the daily mile like Dan does every day and you need some other way to get around, you could always do like Lenny Clark did and just steal a bus. Yeah, that's a true thing he did once upon a time. And I got to ask him about it backstage at Comics Come Home this past November. Lenny Clark. John! Is it true? I heard you once, when you were running for mayor of Boston, yeah. you commandeered, you took a city I, bus I stole it. I and said, drove it down the street. Yeah, trackless trolley in Harvard Square. And, and then he said I couldn't get it started for 50. And then he said, I'll give you another 100 if you can get it out of in between the two buses. I ran the back. He said, I'll give you 200 if you go in the tunnel in Harvard Square. So on a bet, you did all this. Yeah, you took a yeah, bus. Yeah, yeah. Did you keep picking people up, making the I stops? I picked up a couple of elderly people, but then a, a police chasing the street. So I had to pull it up on the sidewalk and block Mass Ave, and I went to a party at the uh, high school football team, 200 witnesses, and they all said it was there, and the cops go, honey, we know you did it. I know. I've been here all night. Well, then you're the best person to ask, since you've actually done public transit. Yeah. How do you fix the MBTA? How do you fix the orange line? What's Lenny Clark's solution to all the subway delays we've been having? More buses, constant buses, constant trains, round-the-clock trains, just keep them moving. Everyone, pay your fare, get on, let's go, that's it. Last question, I'll make it easy. Thanksgiving's coming up. What are you thankful for, Lenny Clark? I'm thankful I'm still alive, and I'm thankful to the Mass General Hospital and two great doctors, Dr. Mansour and Dr. Lamalia. These guys have kept me alive over the past 18 months. Plus, uh, uh, Dr. Ruskin, he's the hot guy. Oh, my God, I love that guy. I love the whole hospital. They've been so good to me, and uh, that's why I, I, I continue to work and raise money for that hospital, because it's the best hospital in the world. Yep. I'm living proof. I'm a miracle of modern science. We're glad to still have you with us. Uh, thanks, John. Lenny, thank you so much. Thank Great to so see you. Much. Come Great on to some see time. You. you can see Lenny at Giggles on Route 1 in Saugus, and make sure you go to the Shark app and read about the Boston Garden Monkey, a wonderful mini-doc that Lenny narrated. It's a crazy story. You're going to love it if you love the old garden. Thanks for listening.